I didn't give anyone anything. I'm not in charge here. Well, Paul gave me the discussion. No, I didn't do anything. I didn't even contribute to the uh, to the uh, <laughs> editor meeting. It's Friday, June 15th, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Paul Peters, Master's Student in Civil Engineering and Disneyland Refugee, and with me today are Gordon Derrick, Contributing Editor at Dutch News and Brexit Philatelist, and Molly Quell, Contributing Editor at Dutch News and Police Dog Theft Requester. Molly. So, Paul. Why are you a police dog theft requester? Because you keep sending me pictures of adorable dogs and I want them and you won't bring them to me because they're police dogs. Yes, that's true. Yeah, you, you asked me to steal it, but it was literally a police dog. I don't, I don't understand what the problem is. Well, yeah. there are police officers surrounding the dog and if I would steal something from them, they would shoot me in the back. I don't understand what the problem is. <laughs> I'm making this worse for yeah. myself, that, that, aren't I? That, that, that's just raising the bar. Yeah, that's, that's true. Bring, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But is it worse for yourself than spending a whole day at Euro Trash Disney? Um, well, it feels like I've been shot in the back. Yeah, That's true. <laughs> you were in France. So. Yeah, I, I was in yeah. France, so there was an actual uh, danger uh, of happening. Uh, no, I, I, I went to Disneyland yesterday. I uh, just came back right before this, uh, the recording of this podcast. I slept for two hours. Uh, I walked 27 kilometers yesterday. Uh, and uh, it was my first time in Euro Disney, but it was truly awful. Yeah. <laughs> I so was, it was the last time in Euro it Disney. Was my, well. and, and it was also, consequently, it was also my last time in Euro Disney. But you did bring Truby a very nice present. I did, yeah. Mm. yeah. Is Truby happy with it? He seems to be very happy yes. with it. Yeah. We'll he, post a picture of the present on the Instagram page. Yes. Okay. And when he did finally get to sleep, did he just have nightmares of being stalked by Minnie Mouse? Yes, I actually was stalked <laughs> by Minnie Mouse because she just kept showing up. Every, every turn I took, she was there. Hashtag me too. Hashtag me too. Um, so yeah, I did have some nightmares. I still have, I still hear some of the uh, Disney music in the back of my head. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure what's worse. Uh, yeah, the, me neither. Disney songs or Molly's voice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so what's more of a nightmare, though, Gordon? Uh, my voice, Disneyland, or uh, Brexit? Uh, yeah, it's a real toss-up, isn't it? <laughs> this, uh, um, in this kind of conflagration, the Royal Mail in the UK issued a set of stamps this week, um, and originally they were going to have a set of stamps for Brexit, but that idea kind of got ditched because uh, Brexit's not going very well. So they just issued a set of Dad's Army stamps from Dad's Army, the sitcom that uh, has been re that is repeated every Saturday on the BBC for the last, uh, well, since the war, basically. Um, and <laughs> Don't mention the war. <laughs> no, that's another sitcom. Oh, that's another one. Yeah, it's a different one. Um, but then they issued this uh, set of stamps, but they're all quotes from Dad's Army that uh, seem to have a certain common theme because one is Don't Panic, <laughs> another one is We're Doomed, We're Doomed, and I, I, don't, I don't know, it's kind of, it's really kind of uh, spooky that they've, uh, instead of uh, um, a set of Brexit stamps, they've got these particular quotes. Yeah. So I wonder they, what's going through their minds. Yeah, they, they, they <laughs> claim they didn't make a Brexit stamp, yeah. but they're clearly about Brexit. <laughs> there is a yeah. certain undercurrent. Yes, yeah, yes, they, yeah, there they're, is. They're, they're kind of subtweeting Brexit. <laughs> yes. Substamping Brexit? <laughs> no, don't go there. Paul, what's the upheaf of the week this week? Uh, the upheaf of the week, I almost forgot about it, but the upheaf of the week is, um, uh, it, it has to do with the illegal taxi uh, uh, business of uh, Cardia Arip. Oh. The chair of the Tweede Kamer. I thought it was going to be your illegal taxi business. No, I, I'm not illegal. I'm very mm. legal. Mm -hmm. 
uh, Denk MP uh, Osturk criticized uh, the Speaker of the Tweede Kamer, Katia Ariep, for offering lifts to other MPs with her official car to Amsterdam when debates in uh, Parliament run deep into the night. Osturk fears uh, misuse of public money and demanded a list of all the MPs that had ever joined her in her car. Osturk was uh, especially surprised to hear PVV MP Martin Bosma, who is also a deputy speaker, uh, was offered a lift. Uh, when Arip was uh, elected as uh, speaker, it was PVV leader Geert Wilders who had said uh, it's terrible that somebody with a Moroccan passport was elected as speaker. Um, Denk had also said they secretly photographed MPs stepping into a car. Arip defended herself by saying that uh, as a normal MP, she had always offered colleagues uh, lifts after nightly debates and uh, she will always uh, keep doing that. Um, she also added uh, she disapproved the muckraking by the uh, Denk party. This seems like a ridiculous. This is an absurd storm in a teacup, doesn't it? So, so basically, Kadir Arib is going home and uh, another MP is going home the same way. So she offers them a lift. At 1.30am or something. At 1.30 in the morning when there's no other way unless you want to spend a fortune on a taxi out of your own money. And somehow this is wrong. Yeah. yeah. She's surprised as a speaker, she offers the deputy speaker a lift yeah. because he's from a different political party. Yes, exactly, yeah, that's what's happening. Yeah. But it's uh, Denk has a history of complaining about uh, Kadia Rib because yeah. she is a Muslim and a Denk party, um, um, you know, they are an Islamic uh, party and they... Uh, for example, Kadia Rib once uh, uh, said it wasn't necessary to uh, give uh, Muslim MPs a free day or a day off uh, on... Uh, Eid Mubarak, Eid Mubarak, the end yeah. of Ramadan. The yeah. end of Ramadan. Mm. Um, so they had, have a history of these kind of, um, you know, yeah. little fights. Yeah. yeah. And this yeah. is uh, one, one, uh, just another well episode in, uh, in this. Yeah. yeah. This is a, this is quintessential all puff because it's like so absurd. It's and about now nothing. I'm, and really, now I'm very angry at it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I made you angry. Yeah, yeah that's we're, true. We're, 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 we're all angry about the op so <laughs> yeah. uh... uh, This week we'll update you on the latest banks in Delft, why there are no banks in Drenthe, and whether or not you'll be hearing banks on New Year's Eve. In our discussion we'll talk about Mark Rutte's speech at the European Union. In an effort to advocate for feminism, the government, mostly men, will vote next week about dictating what women can wear. The Erste Kammer is set to vote on a bill to ban the burqa in the Netherlands. It sets a 400 euro fine for people who cover their faces in government buildings, on public transport, and in schools and hospitals. The bill was initially put forth in the Tweede Kammer in 2005 by Gert Wilders, but has faced a number of procedural issues. Procedural issues being that it's been dropped by all governments since 2005. Right, because yeah. it's terribly racist and, yes. and horribly anti-women, but, you know, whatever. Um, how many women uh, does this impact uh, exactly? Does anybody want to take a guess, not looking at the script? Yeah, it's a I, huge impact on yeah, all of the women in the yeah. Netherlands. Yeah, I know, it's very little number. It's 150. Yeah. The estimates are that about 150 women in the country wear the full covering burqa or the face covering the cob on a daily basis. Yeah, And is the law likely to pass? It seems so. Desa-Sestig Senator Tom DeGraff said the Desa-Sestig Senators are convinced of the need for a ban. It appears to have sufficient support in mm. the, the Erste Kammer, so it will uh, pass, it seems. Yeah. But this is, yeah, so this is a real triumph for Kit Wilders because it's only taken him 13 years to get his first piece of legislation through Parliament. <laughs> right. So, yeah. It's so, really uh, something to be proud yeah. of. Yeah. Maybe in 13 years, Karima Abib will offer him a ride home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'd say, I'd say, I think I can live with that. If one pay fee fee law is put through every 13, 13 years, years, I think that's that probably, we, we can manage that, I think. Yeah. The other thing is, I want to know, if you're being, if it's a fine for travelling on transport, public transport with this gear on, uh, how, how, how are they going to know if, if these people, you know, if these women just produce a false ID. 
Right. Because how are you going to tell, you know, if they're wearing a niqab at the time? Yeah. Make them take that off, I guess. (laughs) I mean, the problem with these, the the, the sort of all joking aside about this being ridiculous, because it is ridiculous, is, is that if you have a woman who is wearing this garment because her family is forcing her to wear this garment, right? Which is sort of like what they're trying to... Well, that's an assumption as well, because in some cases... Yeah, women she's wearing it voluntarily, by, yeah, of course. That they want to wear. But if she's wearing it because her family is forcing her to wear it, now her family is just not going to let her go outside of the house, yeah, which yeah, seems like a way worse situation. Yes. So I have a hard time believing that, like not that banning this does anything to like integrate these people better into society yeah and it's also just the whole um also it's super racist and yeah, and, yeah, I mean, and, and, yeah and it's a whole notion that somehow you're liberating women by telling by telling them to take their clothes off in public yeah which uh, i don't really get either <laughs> yeah a school shooting was narrowly averted in drenta this week not because of the intervention of the police but because it was cancelled by the organizers Jan Behrend van Weyck, the head of the Alpha Collegia in Hochefein, had the bright idea to turn the secondary school's annual safety drill into a simulation of an active shooter scenario. But when he sent out a letter to parents the week before, it caused uproar. One parent branded the idea demented, while another commented, this is raising fears of something that has a very small chance of happening in this country. This isn't America. We're all thankful for that. Indeed. The school said it had not cancelled the event, just postponed it until the commotion had died down, so it might not happen in the next few weeks. I mean, what so they, they try to, to shut down later? the commotion. What? Yeah, what do you think is going to happen when they go to do it later? That there's yeah. not going to be like OPEF about this? No, and no, 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 no. There's a rule. There's an uh, unwritten rule. If there was OPEF uh, about a topic once, then there can't be another oh, OPEF. Oh, right. That's not true. You can't luckily. have double OPEF. Yeah. No, yeah. 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 I, I, luckily, that's not true. Is there, are there a lot of school shooters in Drenthe? Like, why um, is this? No, no I, there's hardly any shooting in Drenthe because there's never in the whole history of Trenta ever been any armed conflict. <laughs> so this would be a first. Yes, yeah. that would be a first. It's the last the place in the world. The first thing that gets taken over in Trenta is a public high school. Good job, I, I can't remember a school shooting in the Netherlands. There has been a shooting once in a um, shopping mall, shopping mall right. in Alfa aan de Rijn. Yeah. Uh, that was a couple of years ago. I think it's almost 10 years ago yeah. now. Uh, or 5 or 10 years. I'm not sure. Uh, but that was the only time I... Uh, I, I I remember that there was a, such a such a thing yeah. happening. There, yeah. there was a shooting drill one time, I think in I think it was in Amsterdam, but it was um, it, it was organised by the police, and uh, it was also at a, um, at a college where children were older, they were, about, they were eighteen or nineteen, whereas these kids are sort of fifteen, sixteen year old secondary school. There's Just imagine that you are so. on the board on the school board in Drenthe, <laughs> and that someone in a meeting shows up and says, "I have an idea. Let's organise yeah. a school shooting drill." And then these people all all seem okay with it and, yeah, and think this, this is a this idea. is a great idea. Yeah. I, I what I want to know is how much of a difference there is between like a school shooting simulation, right, to prep the kids for that sort of situation, and like every other crisis emergency kind of thing. Like, how much difference is this than just like, like running a fire, a fire drill? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Uh, I don't think there is that much difference yeah, and how can you really simulate the effect of you know literally having to run for your life because there's somebody running around the school firing at random yeah we used to do school shooting drills when i worked for the american school in Vassanar, but they used to do like a, a kidnap drill basically because there was like a lot of diplomats kids and stuff there and famous people's kids so you used to have like a if a deranged person gets into the school or like a hostile foreign government comes into the school to kidnap a child right. what do you do and what, what do you do what, lock what's the, the drill? door hide yeah. Basically. 
The cabinet confirmed last Friday it will not go further with the ban on fireworks. Health Minister and Deputy Prime Minister Hugo de Jong, who stood in for Prime Minister Mark Rutte on Friday's news conference after the weekly Council of Ministers, said fireworks on New Year's Eve are a value tradition and banning it will punish the good among the bad. Firework retailers, however, will be required to hand out free eye protection glasses and rocket supports. Punishments for attacking emergency service workers will be increased in additional legislation as well. Last year, the Dutch Safety Board advised the government to ban fireworks. Every year, around 500 people are hospitalized with serious injuries, making New Year's Eve the most dangerous time of year. But it's a value tradition. Being the most dangerous time of year is a time-honored tradition. Yes. I will point out that uh, there's 350 more people impacted by this ridiculous fireworks tradition How? than there are that wear burkas in this country. Yeah. And yet burkas are the threat. Burkas are the yes. threat, man. Burka, uh, although I do, I do think that you could say that maybe you ban, ban a burka if you're going to be setting off I was going to say, yeah, that's that, pretty bad. That <laughs> does seem like solid safety advice. Yes, yes, yes. That's solid safety advice. So I guess people like me who are hoping for the ban are very uh, unhappy now, Paul. Yes, uh, apparently banning fireworks has led to uh, heated debates and tensions within the coalition. Uh, the fifth day uh, opposed the ban, valuing individual freedom and uh, also traditions. Uh, and on the other side, it was the Christen Unie who strongly favored the ban. Uh, the question has led to uh, several internal fights within the cabinet, according to anonymous officials. And also the police is very sad because they said in a statement that uh, they regret the cabinet's decision to ignore the safety board's advice. And also animal protection organization Dierenbeschermer and insurance companies uh, have joined uh, the police. Even though uh, public opinion has seemed to be uh, shifting towards favoring a ban in recent years, 68 million euros were spent on uh, fireworks last year in the Netherlands, despite the shorter selling period of three days before New Year's Eve. So Molly, do you have uh, something to add? I think this is fucking ridiculous. <laughs> I, I tweeted last week that the only reason that this didn't pass is because the Venn diagram of people who set off fireworks and people who vote for the PVV is a fucking circle. <laughs> but this is really interesting because the PVV, on the one hand, yeah, you would think they would back fireworks because it's a, it's, it's a thing that such people do, therefore it's a tradition you shouldn't change. But they're also big on um, animal welfare, aren't they? Yeah. They, they, they want to introduce the animal cops and it's yeah. animals who are really ter- traumatized yeah. by fireworks being yeah. let off. So... But, but there are big fights in cabinet, so it's a real fireworks in the cabinet. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. Meeting room, right? <laughs> we mentioned last week some ongoings in Delft, including a shooting and a bombing. Well, this week there was yet another shooting, which makes me, as an American, feel right at home. To recap, on the 8th of May, a shooting occurred in the city center, which appeared to target a coffee shop, but also struck a tanning salon. Then on May 17th, another incident occurred, which initially was thought to be a shooting, but turned out to be a bombing. A bomb filled with ball bearings was placed in the street in front of another coffee shop in the city center, which is owned by the same person as the first. A number of businesses nearby were also struck, as was one pedestrian. It seemed these incidents were the result of a dispute between the coffee shop owner and a biker gang based in Rotterdam. Then, that weekend, one of the city newspapers carried a strange ad reminiscent of tactics used by Willem Hollander, which fueled more speculation about the events. However, the ad turned out to be a prank. Then, this week, yet another shooting occurred, this time in another part of the city, but seemingly directed at a clothing store and catering shop. There is a rumor, this is not super confirmed, but that the clothing store is owned by the wife of the guy who has the coffee shops. So now they think it's, like, connected. Initially, they weren't sure if there was a connection, Uh but now it seems to be connected. And the clothing store would run out of blue suits and matching And matching (laughs) (laughs) On Wednesday, however, this week, police announced that they've arrested three men in connection with the shootings. And do we know 
anything about the suspects? Not at all. The police are being very tight-lipped. The men were arrested in The Hague. We do know that. And there hmm. were witnesses to the first two incidents. There was, for the first one, they did it on a scooter. And so there was, like, a witnesses that saw two men on a scooter so that there was some description of the people involved. But yeah, it's not clear at this point what exactly the motivations are, although it seems to be leaning towards there being some sort of marijuana-related dispute. The Netherlands women's team are on course to qualify for next year's World Cup finals in France, but only after scraping through by the skin of their teeth against Slovakia in the week. With 90 minutes on the clock at the Abbe Lenstraer Stadium in Herefein, the teams were tied at 0-0, but then Barcelona's Lika Martens swooped with a curling shot to give the Lionesses all three points. Their closest rivals, Norway, now need to beat Slovakia in August to set up a winner-takes-all decider in Oslo on September the 6th. And the World Cup started this week. Uh, who are we all uh, supporting, given that none of our countries have actually made it this time? This is soccer, Andorra. right? Yeah, it's this, soccer. This, yeah, okay. this is football. Yeah. Football. No, soccer, yeah. but okay. Yeah, but you can uh, incorrectly you can call pronounce it, it like. as, uh, yeah. as soccer. I'm just going to go for Belgium. Well, that's because you're one quarter Belgium. That's true. Indeed. Yeah. Yes. Who no. are you supporting, Gordon? I was kind of inclined towards Belgium as well, although Morocco is an option for, uh, as well because they've got five Dutch players in their in their squad, so they're almost a Dutch team. Yes, but they are deserters. Well, they, they got a better offer. I think, yes, from that's the, true. Yeah. It's very Dutch of them just to take the better offer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'll support then just, whoever is playing against Belgium just to give us some well, counterbalance. That, that's, ah. that's, uh, well, that includes England. You sure you want to go there? Uh, I mean, <laughs> I, I'm, I feel very indifferent to this whole <laughs> process. <laughs> yeah, don't care. Indeed. I heard an interview with the uh, the uh, this very famous Egyptian player who usually plays for... for he plays for Tottenham in London, yeah. yes. Um, and he seemed very nice, so maybe yeah. I'll cheer for them. For Egypt? Yeah. Okay. Sure. Yeah. I think we're going to go perhaps for Uzbekistan. Yeah. Iceland has a really good chant. Yeah. Have you heard yeah. Iceland's crazy Viking chant? Thing? You mean the yeah. thing that we've been hearing about the past four years every yes. week? Even of our <laughs> I lives? like yeah. the Iceland chant, so maybe I'll cheer for them. Can, can you show it to us? Because no. I'm not sure how it goes. I'm not I'm not a Viking, therefore I'm not allowed to do it. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Morocco's last, we lost the World Cup 20 years ago. And do they, you know who they beat? Uh, I believe they beat the country of, oh, it's the one with the weird sheep food and the Many kilts, skirts, right? Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah, Scotland, right? Yeah, they yeah, beat Scotland. Right, yeah. And that, I also believe, was the last time that Scotland was in the World Cup. That was a lot, yeah. We, we, we've declined to participate ever yeah. since, yeah. Well, yeah. declined by virtue of not, not being <laughs> good enough to qualify. Yeah. <laughs> declined on the basis that they won't let you play in your skirts. But NRC carried out a poll of Dutch football fans to see if they were backing a team, and uh, 4% went for Morocco. 18% chose Germany. Well, coincidentally, well. I think 4% of the country are from Moroccan descent, so yeah. Uh, yeah, it is a representative uh, survey, apparently. Uh, so 18% chose Germany, and 3 out of 10 said they'd be cheering on Belgium. Are they seriously supporting Germany? Yes, yes. yeah, indeed. One in six. Or coincidentally, over... one-fifth of the people were NSB party members. <laughs> yeah, funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, what could go wrong if you, if you back the Germans? <laughs> yes, uh, exactly, you know? yeah. Airport shops at Schiphol Airport announced they will do more to prevent in-air drunkenness. Schiphol trained 2,800 people working in the airport's bars and restaurants to spot problem situations and intervene earlier, such as refusing to serve customers alcohol and warn airlines about possibly drunk or aggressive passengers. Walter Seib, a spokesperson of HMS Host, which represents 70% of Schiphol's bars and restaurants, said the measures are only aimed at those who are potentially dangerous to their fellow passengers. Some of them get noisy and disruptive, which is a nightmare for flight crews, we cannot tolerate dangerous situations, he said. Schiphol is also working closely with airlines to limit disruptive behavior, 
the airport staff is monitoring closely if embarking passengers are under the influence and, if necessary, refuse them permission to board. This is only dangerous if you're drunk, right? As opposed to just, That's a dangerous just other being people dangerous. Yes. Yeah. Okay. yes. Just checking. Yeah. yeah. And have you guys ever had a nightmare flight? I got stranded in Iceland, but that was because of the uh, Iceland immigration officials who refused to let me fly back into the Netherlands because my residency permit was expiring. Even though, like, you, as an American citizen, I don't need a visa to enter the Netherlands. So I did get stranded in Iceland for, like, two days trying to sort that out. I got stranded in Abu Dhabi for a while because I was flying back from India and I was booked on a flight that didn't exist. So I flew, <laughs> I flew from, from Mumbai to Abu Dhabi and then went to go try to find my flight and there was no flight to the US. So that was a disaster. I was on a plane that got into an accident once on the runway. Were you drinking at the time? No, I don't drink. I never drink when I fly. I do not drink before flights and I don't drink during a flight ever. The only yeah. time I've ever consumed alcohol on a flight was I got upgraded on a Lufthansa flight flying back from Germany once on New Year's Eve, and they brought you good champagne uh, every time we rung in the New Year, which is like eight times between, <laughs> right? Because you're going, you keep hitting the time zone over and over again. And then I did have champagne. and that's Eight the, times. Yeah, eight times. Eight glasses of champagne. Yeah. We'll be looking at uh, Margaret's speech at the European Parliament after this word from our sponsors. GMW Lawyers is an innovative law firm located in The Hague, with clients based both in the Netherlands and abroad. They are known for their dedicated, committed and no-nonsense approach and will work to achieve the best result for you. GMW specialises in family, employment, corporate, liability and property law. They also support the Legal Expat Desk, a legal resource for internationals. You can find them online at gmw.nl and the Legal Expat Desk at legalexpatdesk.nl. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to get in touch. You won't be charged for initial legal advice. You can reach them by email at info at gmw.nl. Nine months ago, Mark Rutter greeted European Commission Chairman Jean-Claude Juncker's State of the Union address with the retort, if I have visions, I go and see a doctor. This week, Rutter was in Strasbourg, outlining his vision for the future of the EU to the European Parliament. Rutter said the EU's members should concentrate on working together to help each other achieve greater prosperity, security and stability, and focus on adding value to its member states. In the course of his speech, Rutter quoted Winston Churchill, Goethe, and, less probably, John Wayne, arguing that Europe, like the cowboys venturing into the West, should be ready to circle the wagons when darkness or danger approached. So what's prompted the Prime Minister's sudden enthusiasm for the EU, and what do we learn about the state of Europe as it prepares for Brexit? So, Gordon, what are Rutter's um, big issues, or what were the big issues he addressed in the speech? Um, first of all, he, he insisted the EU budget should shrink after Brexit, because some European countries think that the budget should stay at the same level or even grow uh, after the UK, which is, of course, uh, one of the uh, bigger contributors to the European Union's budget, uh, leaves. And some European leaders want to raise it to 1.18% of member states' contributions from the current 1%. The European Parliament's asking for 1.3%. Um, Rutter said uh, he raised the spectre of populism, saying that if you want to continue to strengthen right-wing populist parties, then by all means insist upon your 1.3%. 
So there's a sort of barbed reference there to you know the likes of Wilders uh, and uh, you know, drawing on the point that yes. you know, he, he's got experience at home of fighting off these uh, th- these right wing politicians or just absorbing their rhetoric by uh, by, by issuing campaign posters um, <laughs> to, to telling immigrants to with, get in uh, line yeah. <laughs> with uh, yeah. with orange. Uh, uh, yeah, but getting back to Europe, yeah, he said uh, the EU should under promise and over deliver. That was one of his uh, most quoted lines, oh. I think, in the speech. Yeah, that's so, a good life lesson, to be honest. Yeah. Not, even, <laughs> not even in disagreement. Yeah. So, no, surprise people with yeah. uh, with, with, with your achievements. Yeah. He said. But he's basically saying less is more, I think. Yeah. He's saying that uh, you, you should concentrate on a few areas rather than trying to sort of do everything and uh, and kind of take over the um, things that can be done perfectly, handled perfectly well by member states. Which line do we like better? Under promise and over deliver or less is more? Well, I like under promise and over deliver. Yes, yes. Really. It's, uh, yeah. I think, I mean, under promise and over deliver is a good... I think generic life lesson for people. Um, Greta also uh, addressed the um, issue of the Eurozone, which she said should be about convergence and competitiveness and a mechanism for creating affluence. And also he's against the the whole idea of um, some some countries like France or Germany have proposed a kind of European monetary fund, uh, which is basically a a sort of backup for, you know, when countries get into trouble with their their debts or their deficits um, or that banks need to be bailed out. And we're just saying that should be a last resort rather than the first resort. You know, he said, of course, countries in a currency union should help each other out, but only if it, you know, when things get really bad, it shouldn't be a kind of default option because that encourages bad economic practice yes and that's yeah. probably uh, a message to italy yeah. yeah 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 because the new italian government has just been uh, turning back uh, refugee boats in yeah. the mediterranean that was another point that Britta raised that he said that uh, europe should uh, be tackling migration more yeah. as a collective uh, point and he said one of the things that persuaded him to be more kind of pro-european was uh, the fact that he realized that on some issues it is better to work within the european union say because he struck the um, the deal with turkey to take in um, for Turkey to take in migrants who were previously crossing the sea to Greece, yeah. but uh, yeah, on, and then on, um, he also raised a point about the environment, and this is a point where in, on a lot of issues, uh, Rutter was kind of um, trying to dampen down the ambitions of um, uh, politicians like uh, Emmanuel Macron and uh, Angela Merkel. But on the environment, he's very much on on their side, and he says he's talking about raising the target of reducing greenhouse gas emissions, which is currently forty percent, um, which predates the Paris Agreement. He wants to raise it to fifty five percent by twenty thirty. That's very ambitious. So, yeah, but as another issue where Rutter says this is a you know, it's the environment. You've got to tackle it on a pan-European basis. Yeah. No yes, point in the Netherlands. Yes, yes. The, the environment country. doesn't stop yeah. at the border with Indeed. Belgium. Yeah. So overall, what do we uh, what do we think of his uh, what do we think of his speech, Paul? I know you watched it and read it carefully. <laughs> Did you even know Ritter gave a speech? I knew he gave a speech, but I haven't. Uh, I haven't read anything about it. I saw him walking into the building. Okay. That's it. As yeah. the sole VVD voting member of this podcast, how do you feel about what you've just heard Gordon well, outline for well, you? Well, uh, what I hear from uh, from what he what he talked about in his speech, I fully agree with him. But he uh, his his tone of voice and what he says in in Europe and in the European Parliament is always very different from yeah. what he says in the Netherlands. Yeah, because so Ritter is a smart politician. He is a very smart politician. Yeah, he's the Teflon prime minister, of yeah, course. Yeah. Um, so uh, when when I hear when I when I see what he has been talking about, I fully agree with him. Yeah, a lot of commentators sort of said that uh, this was a conversion of uh, 
uh, Rutter to the European cause. But he, he said a lot of these things before, yeah. to be honest. In the speech in March in Berlin, he said a lot of underlined a lot of the same points. And in in many ways, he was still quite um, Eurosceptic or talking about a uh, you know a smaller constrained Europe. I mean, the quote from Goethe uh, was that um, mastery is shown in constraint. You know, yeah. that Europe should you know shouldn't be um, over ambitious. It should just concentrate on doing a few things. Yes. Well, where it's really needed, like security yeah. um, and and the environment as well. So I'm not sure it's really a big shift in his um, his, his attitude towards Europe. But as you say, he's tailoring his speech to, to to satisfy his audience. Perhaps as well. I think the other thing is that maybe because there weren't saying, that many people in the in the assembly hall, though. No, but he's, I think <laughs> in terms of the wider audience among sort of Europe's political classes, and he, yeah. he wanted to sound like someone who was more pro-European. Yes. I think there's a few reasons for that. One is, as he said himself, that the world's become a bit more chaotic and um, uh, turbulent because of you know things like the arrival of the Trump administration. Um, and, and he said he made the point that uh, Trump's a le- the US is a less reliable partner, so Europe's got to kind of do things on its own, off its own back more. Yeah. Um, also talking about Russia, he made a direct point about you know the, the way that the Russia has um, uh, behaved, uh, you know, in in uh, that it's also not a reliable partner, and that Europe Europe needs to you know uh, stand up to kind of intimidation and um, disruptive tactics uh, by the Russians. And again, that's the kind of thing that that Europe needs to where, where Europe needs to stand as a as a team. I- you know, it, I, I loathe to say that I like Ritter because he fucking gets on my nerves with a lot of things, but he's such a masterful politician. And I yeah. think. He's kind of like a political acrobat, isn't he? He's, he's somehow really able good. to sort of. And d- like, just... as much as I'm like loathe to say this, and also my lovely in laws who are on vacation, so maybe they're not listening to the podcast, so they will not <laughs> hear this because none of there's no support of Ritter. I think he's an excellent leader for a country, and I have a hard time thinking that I would not vote for him if you were voting for prime minister because I think that he makes an excellent prime minister. And one of the things that I saw in this speech that I really liked is he was kind of somewhat upfront about the fact that the world has changed from, you know, a year ago or two years ago or five years ago. And that the thing that has that he has admitted that his positions have shifted somewhat and in Mm. response to the world changing. And that I think is a good thing for people to say and acknowledge, right? That like you as a politician can say you believe in X, but like when the world changes around you, you then have to shift your opinion to Y. And I know that it wasn't... You don't very often hear that from from politicians, yeah. Yeah, and I know that his his opinion, like you were saying, it was was fairly tapered. It wasn't sort of like a total, you know, flip-flop necessarily. And also that it's been becoming progressively more important over time. But he was very clear about the fact that like, you know, there is a a crisis on the southern borders of Europe, that Brexit is a problem, that Trump is a problem, Mm. that Russia is a problem, that the growing influence of China is a problem, that these can all be bad things for the EU, and that the best thing that the EU can do is to like stick together and work together well to protect the interests of Europe within the EU. Yes. Um, And as someone who has lived in places outside of the EU, like very often the places that you have a best quality of life, like the Europeans have got a lot of stuff figured out here. And I mean, I know some of that is like, luck in terms of you know a history of colonizing and making a lot of money on that whatever but i think it, there are a lot of things here that should be an example for the world and that like you need to do what you can to like protect that that situation like within these countries when it seems that like you're you know the wolves are kind of barking off in the distance about yeah. trying to disrupt this sort of situation 
Yeah, yeah. I think there's a certain there's a definite strong thread. I think of a real politic uh, yeah. in, in in his speech as well. And I think Russia's one of the European politicians has really got to grips with the fact that Brexit is really happening. Yeah. Because I think there's been a certain amount of wishful thinking by politicians like Donald Tusk saying maybe it's not going to go ahead. Yeah. There's yeah. even a vote in the European Parliament to keep the British seats in the Parliament open yeah. until Brexit, just in case they change the UK their change their mind. It's not going to happen. And no. Britain is one of those people who actually understands that and he's repositioning himself um, within Europe because he knows there's a void now in the UK and the UK has been an important partner to the Netherlands in Europe and the, two, and the Netherlands has kind of tended to be very good at playing off Britain and Germany and France who've all got different agendas um, and now suddenly he finds that there's imbalance here and, and he's, he's very keen he's put this coalition together with smaller nations like Ireland, Sweden, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia which have been labelled Mark Rutter and the Seven Dwarfs or yeah. the Beer Drinkers <laughs> and, um, the and he's done this really to... not conquered by Rome except for that little part of Limburg so yeah. it doesn't really was. Yeah. 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 All, yeah all those kind of nicknames but yeah but, 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 yeah, but, but what Rutter's doing there is he's kind of making sure that there isn't a void when the UK leaves and there's still the, the, that power balance is still there and that more kind of nations that favour a smaller uh, Europe uh, still have a voice and particularly I think the, the, the big thing for the, for the Dutch has always been not to spend more money on the European Union. Yeah. That's been a, a biggest yeah. Yeah. shockingly yeah. the Dutch. Shockingly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But he seems he seems to be uh, one of the uh, yeah o- one of the only leaders in the European Union who is accepting Brexit and 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 taking action yeah against yeah. Brexit and thinking um, through the consequences. Yeah, yeah. So he's he appears to be one of the one of the few leaders within the European Union. But interestingly enough, he mentioned in the in the speech that he wasn't uh, in in the running to become the new. Uh, European Union president, uh, so to speak. Yeah. So he uh, he he literally <laughs> took the stage in Strasbourg in the European Union to say that he wasn't in running for yeah. the European Union, which could mean either way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, wh- whenever a politician is denying something, yeah. never take right. him yeah. take him it's, seriously. It's a very Dutch like approach, right? I mean, it's very practical, it's very pragmatic, and it's very like efficient. And I think it is a thing that the Dutch do very well, and that like they should be commended for. In terms of like you know both in their culture and, and society and and on this like European Union stage, um, but I think also it's kind of uh, he's setting out a very you know um, real kind of European liberal vision of Europe yeah. as well. He's very much against the more social democratic mm. approach of the um, Germans and the French. You know, he's saying the Europe the euro should be a vehicle for creating greater affluence rather than de- redistributing wealth between European countries. And he's also his big thing actually not many people picked up on, and he mentioned he said this in his speech in Berlin as well. But I think Rutter's really keen on this is sort of liberalising the whole services sector in Europe, which at the moment is all bound up with kind of uh, a lot of um, protectionist, protectionist measures that have often like been... like which uh, like which services. Uh, I think the whole the, the, the whole services industry basically were to claims that there's a, a trillion euros worth of um, is uh, it that much pro- protect uh, that's, so that's much what he says I wouldn't oh. know I haven't I haven't done the research into oh. it I don't oh. know but, 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 but we're just talking about unleashing the full potential of the single market which yeah. seems uh. yeah. but I think I think the experience this kind of liberalizing agenda that we've had in the UK is that you tend to find that actually the, um, the the wealth and the powers becomes concentrated in the hands of a few yeah. large companies so you'd expect sort of some large European pan-european service players to yeah. start appearing or emerging as if, if, if this vision starts to be borne out. Yeah, and I'm while I am a person who is naturally skeptical of like really big companies because I don't think that that generally benefits the sector that they're in, I do wonder if you had genuinely sort of pan large multinational European companies, what that would mean in terms of like 
cohesion amongst the countries, right? I wonder as well how much um, Rutter's slight change of heart or change of tone is to do with the fact that he's got to find these new allies in Europe as well. Because, you know, for example, one of the things he said that was new, I think, was that he said that he accepted that wealthy nations should pay more um, towards the European Union budget. Um, although he made a point of saying not disproportionately so. So yeah. it should be proportioned to how much wealth we actually have. But some of his partners um, in this, this sort of uh, alliance of nations are countries like Ireland and Slovakia, who are still net beneficiaries of the European budget. So you can't say anything that uh, frightens them off. Right. So maybe that's why he's taking a side of soft Yeah, or stance. this is just a very realistic approach. Yeah, and the other thing is, of course, he's in, a, he's in his coalition at home. He's got D66, who are much more pro-European than the yeah. KFAD. Yeah. So you've got to keep them on side as well. So that's the kind of political ac- acrobat yeah. that uh, Rutter is. He, he, he's trying to he's please all bases yeah. at one, uh, the same time. So what if the Dutch uh, sort of newspapers or news media kind of reacted? How they reacted to this speech? Well, they did kind of seem to um, go along with the idea that this was a big change of uh, direction by Rutter. I mean, uh, the NSA said it was the most pro-European speech he's made, which I think is a fair assessment. Yeah. Um, I'm not, as, I, as I said, I'm not sure how much of a uh, real um, a shift, um, shift of gear it is, but it is definitely a change of, uh, of tone and language and content to a point. Uh, news here kind of, yeah, they had an interview with him actually uh, after on the day of the speech and sort of said, well, what's happened to you then? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> question. Uh, which I think is maybe a bit dramatic. Um, a bit dramatic. Yeah, I read an article in the, the Telegraph um, about the, the speech and I was sort of surprised at how much it played up the changes basically yeah. Um, yeah. I think it gave me a slightly different perception maybe of of the speech versus what I had seen maybe in some of the other papers so. yeah um, Thierry Baudet also put a video on Twitter claiming that um, <laughs> uh, that Rutter had really drunk the European Kool-Aid did he sing a song in front of the piano and played his it? piano I, did, I didn't actually watch it I just yeah. saw that it had happened yeah. uh, that's all we have for you uh, this week uh, this podcast is a production of Dutch News which can be found online at dutchnews.nl we will include links to everything we talked about today in the liner notes you can uh, get in touch with us by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl if you want to help us out please subscribe to the podcast and uh, leave us a rating my thanks to gordon derrick and molly quell i'm paul peters and we'll be back next week (laughs) 